0: As a Dharma teacher, I spend a lot of time reflecting on the Buddha's teachings. Um, sometimes I think that being a Dharma teacher actually is, for me, <laughs> my own benefit, <laughs> because I get to spend so much time really practicing and reflecting and studying so that I can Offer teachings, and yet, in order to do that, I'm continually benefiting and uh, deepening in my own understanding and my own practice. And so, when I reflect on the Buddha's teachings, one of the things that I'm continually touched by is the depth of the Buddha's compassion to show us the way to happiness, to freedom. And when we reflect on it, you know, that's all that mattered to the Buddha was to teach and instruct people, beings, on how to increase our happiness. Sometimes, you know, we talk about freedom, but when we really consider what freedom is, freedom means happy, happiness, happy, happy. <laughs> As one of the Ajahn, Ajahn Jumin, just walks around going, happy, 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 happy. <laughs> we're really talking about being happier, more satisfied, more content, more joyful. This is what it means to be free. Sometimes we don't really maybe sense what, it, we're really, what this is really uh, about. So so, so we're talking about all of these teachings, all the instructions, everything is pointing to an increased level of happiness. So through the Buddha's generosity, through his compassion, through his wisdom, he spent this 45 years of his life walking and instructing so that people could be free and happy. So in reading his discourses and there's many many discourses uh, just it's really quite remarkable that these t- teachings these these talks of the buddha are available to us there's thousands of discourses that have been translated from the original language pali into English and other languages, and we can actually look at those teachings and look at those transcripts and study them and reflect on them and consider what did the Buddha actually teach. And when I spent time reading one of the um, uh, volumes of uh, the discourses called the Majama Nikaya, it's about 152 of the discourses I um Spent some time reading that, and there was a particular teaching that really, not, not just a teaching, but kind of a theme that really stood out for me in that reading of those discourses. And it was actually something a little different than I had heard through the Dharma talks and the years I had been practicing. It was like something actually dropped much deeper in my understanding of what the Buddha was pointing to. Because mostly through the years I was practicing, I would get the instruction to let go. You know it's all about letting go, letting go, letting go. You know the same instruction that you've had, you know, that not to hold on, the instructions we've been giving this week, not to hold on to anything, let go. let go, let go. And it can seem like this is really the pith teaching of the Buddha. Is this teaching of letting go, and it is. But there's a but there's a, 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 a way that the Buddha talks about it that is really helpful for us in a very practical way. A way we can really look at our <laughs> own mind and know exactly what we're supposed to be letting go of. And this is what we ask sometimes. Well, what's the practice point here? How can we actually practice this very directly? So I want to talk about that tonight. I want to talk about this this what I call uh, mind turning, turning the mind, turning this actual practice with intention of turning our mind towards that which is good, or towards that which is wholesome, towards that which brings about happiness. which means that we turn our mind away from that which is unwholesome or that which is leading us to more suffering. And so the Buddha really clarifies this point for us. How do, I, how do we identify the, our thoughts, our words, our speech, and our actions that are leading us to more suffering and those that are leading us to more happiness? And to actually make clear, through the discernment of that, through the clear discernment of that, to begin to make choices for ourselves, moment to moment to moment, so that we are choosing happiness. In this way, we're not just kind of, it's not random what happens to us. Our, Our experience, the way our life is taking shape isn't random, but we can actually act be actively involved in our transformation. With awareness and mindfulness, clear seeing, we actively engage. And this is what we're doing when we practice. When we sit, when we walk, when we practice the eightfold noble path of the Buddha, which lays out the map, we're actively engaged through our wisdom, through our understanding, through our effort, through our energy, through our clear intentions about what we want to have happen in our life. And if we can feel and if we can sense that kind of that wish or sometimes that longing within our own being to be happier and to come out of the pain, to come out of the suffering that we're feeling then we can, based on the instructions and the guidance, we can follow those instructions and then be actively engaged in turning the conditions of our life around so that we experience more and more levels of joy. And it has to start, though, it has to start with some connection, some interest, some willingness in order for that to happen. Otherwise, things are random. When you say random, I mean, what I mean by that is habitual. We're just caught in our habits of mind. Those conditioned habits that get repeated over time, again and again and again. And when we do the same things over and over and over again, we are strengthening and reinforcing those habits. And without awareness... we're we're likely strengthening habits of mind that are leading to more pain and suffering. There may be times that we have some awareness oh yeah this, this actually made me feel very happy or easeful and then we might do it again but usually there's not too much awareness about that and we're reinforcing some of the same things through our speech well through our thinking patterns, through our speech and our behavior, our actions whether uh, it's um, the the habits of speech and the way we talk, and maybe the way we talk that is uh, uh, not so kind or not so uh, careful we may be speaking in ways that are harsh or uh, expressing ill will or judgment or blame or um, you know we just I mean, without awareness, we may not know that we may not really understand what the causes. Of that suffering is, but we feel it. We feel it. It's like, well, why, why do I keep feeling this way? I'm trying to get my point across. I'm trying to say what I think and feel, but it just, I just keep, doesn't go anywhere, doesn't work. But we we need to continue to reflect and to consider what's going on? What, what's happening here that's giving rise to this pain and suffering? So the Buddha. Um, In one of the discourses, the Buddha talks about when before he was uh, enlightened, before he uh, was awake. And he said, when I was an unenlightened bodhisattva, I had this reflection, and the Buddha talks about this particular reflection. When he looked at his own mind, he could see that there were two kinds of thoughts. He puts these two kinds of thoughts, and the discourse is called Two Kinds of Thoughts. And he says, there are thoughts, I see, I saw, that there were thoughts of greed, hatred, and confusion. And reflected on the fact that when I thought those thoughts, that brought about more pain and suffering. And there were, that was one category of thoughts. And another category of thoughts were thoughts of non-greed, non-hatred, non-confusion. And those, when I thought those thoughts, those thoughts actually led me to more happiness and ease. And when you think about what, what is non greed, we could turn it around rather than the absence of, it's the presence of generosity. It's the presence of renunciation or letting go, where we're not holding on, we're not clinging. So the mind is filled with generosity and renunciation, when we're not caught in our thoughts of greed. When we consider what thoughts are of non-hatred, rather than thinking about the absence, but rather the presence of love. Non-hatred is loving kindness, or metta. The mind is filled with loving kindness. So if we're not caught up in hatred or thoughts of ill will, our mind is is at ease filled with this kindness and the thoughts of non-confusion when we turn that around into presence it's the presence of wisdom when we're not confused and there's clarity of mind there's wisdom there's a possibility for wisdom so, so the Buddha looked, he said, it's it, the, the very important to contemplate this, to actually reflect on this. And in the suttas, in the discourses, you, see, you hear a lot of the importance of reflection rather than just clearing the mind and clearing the mind. That is a particular practice of meditation. But to actually practice on the path requires a lot of reflection and contemplation and, and some study and really consideration of what these teachings are about. So the Buddha said when he really reflect, he reflected on the consequences of these two kinds of thoughts, so when he reflected on uh, uh, th- when he would think thoughts of greed, hatred, and delusion, he said he could see that it brings about pain to myself, it brings about pain to others, it's obstructing wisdom and leading me away from freedom, from Nibbana. Yeah, and so when when he recognized this, he realized he had to not think those thoughts, to abandon those thoughts, to do what he could to stop the patterns of those thoughts, not to let those pr- proliferate. And that's where the effort of the energy comes in, the, cl- the clarity the, through the discernment. Oh, yeah, I'm thinking those kinds of thoughts, and they bring about pain. And lead me away from the from the from where I really want to be going. And then he then he said, "Well, when I when I reflected on the consequences of thinking of thoughts of generosity and uh, loving kindness and wisdom, he said they did not lead me into more pain or pain for others. They actually encouraged wisdom." Brought about more wisdom and led me towards freedom, led me towards happiness, led me towards nibbana. And so, when he said, he so, when he had thoughts of generosity and love and wisdom, he said, then there was nothing to do. It wasn't like I had to work with my mind, it's just recognizing, ah, yeah, those thoughts are there. And then through that recognition and through the presence of those thoughts, they are already generating their power. It's very powerful when there's generosity in the mind and heart. It's very powerful when there's love in the mind and heart. There's nothing we have to do with that. It's already generating its own consequences. So, so the practice and the discernment is to recognize when the thoughts are leading to more pain and then abandoning those thoughts as much as we can. So this is, the, um, this is um, working with the mind in this way. This is the importance of turning the mindfulness to the mind so we actually know what we're thinking. And this is really important in our daily life when we leave the retreat. Many of us are leaving the retreat. Some people here are continuing to practice. And when we're in our daily life and we have so much impinging and so much stimulation and so much coming at us, we may not have the same level of mindfulness that we've had here on the retreat. And yet when the thoughts are strong and we feel some sense of this tension or stress or this um, uh, uh, agitation, then it's important to know, well, what am I thinking? What's going on here? What's actually happening that's bringing this about? Because when we can get some sense of that, then we can interrupt it. We can do something different. And the Buddha actually talks about replacing the thoughts. You know, and I was so funny when I first read that, it was like, oh my gosh, that's the Buddha talked about that. I thought that was just New Age. That was just a New Age thing just to substitute the thoughts, you know, think positive thoughts rather than negative thoughts, you know. That's a, such a kind of popular thing. And Here's the Buddha's talking about it, you know, replace the thoughts. Don't just continue thinking these negative thoughts or these thoughts that are leading to more pain. He said, put, you know, start thinking something that's actually going to bring about something more wholesome, make you feel happier. So then that act of engagement. But then he says in the discourse, he says, but even better than replacing the thoughts is quieting and concentrating the mind. Just quieting, bringing about a certain level of tranquility and calm so that the thoughts then aren't impinging so much. The thoughts aren't gripping and grabbing in our consciousness so much when there's the lack of awareness. But to actually, through the meditation, through the mindfulness, to begin to quiet those thoughts as we, ha- as we know uh, from our meditation. And then what happens, and in, in my experience, is what happens is that the thoughts don't actually go away they just kind of move into the background. And I often have this experience as if a, like a radio, my mind sometimes feels like just like radio on in the back corner of the room. And yeah, the radio is on, it's not disturbing anybody, it's just there's nothing too offensive on the radio, you know, it's just in the back, and it's just kind of doing its thing, and I'm doing my thing. So I don't have to be it's not disturbing me, it's not impinging, but I don't have to turn the radio off. In fact, I can't turn the radio off. Have you ever tried to? <laughs> the radio of your mind? You know, it just kind of keeps going and going. But through the quieting and the tranquility of our practice, it just the thoughts just kind of move back. It feels like that. They kind of get quieter, less impinging. And then the presence or the awareness is strong and we can just be pay attention to what we're doing without that... Um, static, the static of our thinking mind, which can be so noisy and so loud, and so we quiet the mind, still the mind, and we can practice this too in our daily life through the just when we're walking. So if the mind's really going, just feel ourselves, our body walking, feel our feet on the ground, know where we are, connect with the the the, the, the objects of the senses, quiet the mind. Not, not empty the mind. And we have to be a little bit careful about that because we can get into an idea of what it means to quiet the mind as if there will be no more thoughts. And then we can get into a kind of rejection. Oh, my mind's busy. I have to stop my thoughts, annihilate my thoughts. Just quiet the thoughts. Steady the mind. Focus the mind. Get the mind a little more concentrated but if not, replace the thoughts. <laughs> it's a very, very helpful antidote, antidote for us. And then the, the Buddha says, he points out how excessive thinking, he says, that, he says there's an, excessive thinking isn't actually wrong. And it's so interesting that this is actually translated like this. He says, excessive thinking isn't wrong, it's just going to tire you out. <laughs> it's just going to exhaust you. And then you're not going to have the resources to continue your practice. So, again, you know, just a, a good practical piece of information. So, quiet the mind, get your mind a little more quiet and steady so you don't get so tired out by all the thinking. Has anyone noticed how tiring thinking can be? <laughs> Ex- I'm exhausted from my mind, people tell me a lot of the time. And so here we use our, our resources, we use the different skills we have, meditative skills to help that. So we're not only quieting and studying the mind, but through that discernment, paying attention to the thoughts that are actually uh, taking hold and causing us a lot of stress and anxiety in our life. That's a really beautiful and practical teaching. And the, this is a quote from the Buddha which, where he says, Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of one's mind. Very profound. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of one's mind. So, what do we want? our mind to be inclining towards? Or how do we want our mind to be inclining? Because you can actually feel that. We've talked about that this week, this kind of movement of mind, this move, how the mind can move. And so we're actually talking about this turning towards that which brings happiness, that which brings joy. And, and, and we do that not only through just the meditative capacity, but actually through starting to say things, that bring about more happiness. Talk in a way that brings that about. Do things. Start to generate certain actions that bring that about. And I'm going to give some examples. I want to um, I want to read this um, particular discourse called the the greater discourse on ways of undertaking things. And it's really. Um, and I'll give some examples, present-day examples, but um, I think it really, uh, again, just exemplifies what's happening here and and how we can actually implement uh, action to make a difference in our lives. So it starts off, um, bhikkhus, this is the Buddha. Bhikkhus, for the most part, beings have this wish, desire, and longing. And before I say that, this is you know, this is 2,500 years ago. So we say things change, but listening to this, you wonder, does, has, any, has, human, has human nature changed at all in 2,500 years? So he says, "Bikus, for the most part, beings have this wish, desire, and longing. If only unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things would diminish and wished-for, desired, agreeable things would increase. Have you ever had that wish? (laughs) And then the Buddha says, yet although beings have this wish, desire, and longing, unwished-for, undesired, disagreeable things increase for them, and wished-for, desirable, agreeable things diminish. Now, bhikkhus, what do you think is the reason for that? (laughs) And then the monks reply, our teachings are rooted in the blessed one, guided by the blessed one. It would be good if the blessed one would explain the meaning of these words. (laughs) Having heard it from the blessed one, we will remember it. And so the Buddha says, then listen bhikkhus and attend closely to what I shall say. Now, when you hear that, attend closely to what I say. Is there a little grasping? (laughs) It's like, oh, what did the Buddha say? (laughs) (laughs) Words that are going to liberate me. (laughs) So basically what he's saying in this discourse, and I'll I'll read bits of it, he says that basically people don't know what things to cultivate and to follow and what things not to cultivate and follow. So it's very much that two kinds of thought. What What do we cultivate and follow? What are we cultivating and following? So it's so just as a, a synopsis, there's four parts. And and the first part is when where the Buddha says there is a way of undertaking things that is painful now and will ripen as pain in the future. Painful now and will ripen as pain in the future. And he says it's like taking like horrible tasting poison. And dukkha now, dukkha is suffering, so you get dukkha now and dukkha later. So when we make these kind of choices, this is what you're gonna get. You're gonna get dukkha now and dukkha later. But usually we don't know that. He says, the second part is there is a way of undertaking things that is pleasant now, but will ripen as pain in the future. He says, this is like taking uh, sweet tasting poison. Mm -hmm. Sukha, Sukha is pleasure so dukkha is suffering, sukha is pleasure so he's like, Sukha now but dukkha later you know that kind? (laughs) and then the third one is there is a way of undertaking things that is painful now but will ripen as pleasure in the future he said this is like taking horrible tasting medicine So instead of poison, it's medicine. So it tastes terrible, but it's going to heal you. It is going to be healing. So he says it's dukkha now and sukha later. And the fourth one is there is a way of undertaking things that is pleasurable now and will ripen as pleasure in the future. We like that one. (laughs) (laughs) It's like taking sweet-tasting medicine it tastes sweet now and it's going to heal us suka now and suka later <laughs> and Catherine and i were upstairs kind of going duka now duka later duk-a. suka now duka later suka now duka later suka now suka later <laughs> suka later we go to this little kind of we thought maybe we'd get up and start dancing <laughs> so um So understanding this, so he has these similes. The first one, Bhikkhu, suppose there there were a bitter gourd mixed with poison and a man came who wanted to live, not to die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain. And they told him, good man, this bitter gourd is mixed with poison. Drink from it if you want. As you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will not agree with you, and after drinking from it, you will come to death or deadly suffering. Then he drank from it without reflecting and did not give it up. As he drank from it, its color, smell, and taste did not agree with him, and after drinking from it, he came to death and deadly suffering. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is painful now and ripens in the future as pain. Completely unconscious, right? Somebody gives us something, we take it and we die. You know, No real reflection, no contemplation. Completely unconscious. Suffering that leads to more suffering. Just through habit, just through unconscious habit. We don't know what we're doing, we don't know... We're not really considering, thinking. I mean, we can look at the five precepts. I think the five ethical guidelines are really good examples, and that's why these five guidelines are laid out for us. Because without, when we kill, for example, when when be when people are killed or beings are killed, there's without thinking, without the conscious reflection there's suffering not only is there suffering for the person who was killed but the suffering for the one who is actually doing the killing when the when the sensitivity when the consciousness comes in when we steal or take something that isn't given to us freely we think somehow that's going to make us happy we think that that stealing that act of stealing is going to bring us some kind of pleasure or happiness but it doesn't. It ultimately just, when it's considered, when there's some conscious reflection, it's painful. We feel not only is it painful for us, but it's painful for the person that or people who were in, involved with that. We can see on retreat when we get angry. We get angry at somebody for doing something that we think is stupid or that they shouldn't have done and we're projecting that anger out and blaming them and yet if we feel that anger is painful you know we're we're trying to project it out with they're bad or they're doing something wrong but but the anger's here it's suffering that leads to more suffering it's not considered it's not reflected i remember for some years i looked at um my intention behind my speaking i was doing some training around communication And so one of the um, uh, suggestions or one of the practices really was to look at the motivation when I spoke. And I hadn't brought that into consciousness very clearly in those days, many, many years ago. And when I started to actually look at the motivation behind my speaking, I was horrified. Because I saw that, I mean, I thought I was a good person, I thought I was a kind person. And then I started seeing, God, I really wanted to hurt that person. I wanted to get back at them. I want I was so angry at them I wanted to hurt them so for, for hurting me. And it was like, oh gosh, I'm I do that? Suffering that leads to more suffering, but I didn't know I was doing it because there was no reflection, there was no awareness around it. So this is the this is the, the, the dukkha now, dukkha later. Somehow we think what we're doing is gonna make us bring us more happiness. we think somehow it's going to resolve the issue but we it actually just brings us more pain, more suffering. It's wrong view it's wrong just confusion. The second one, sukana later. suppose there were a bronze cup. Of beverage possessing a good color, smell, and taste. So it's very interesting, the similes, because already the cup is beautiful. It's a bronze cup, right? Enticing. And it has good color, good smell, good taste. You know those kinds of things? They kind of pull you in, they seduce you. Oh, yeah, that's nice. But it was mixed with poison. And a man, who came, who, a man came who wanted to live, not to die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain. And they told him, Good man, this bronze cup of beverage possesses a good color, smell, and taste, but it is mixed with poison. Drink from it if you want. As you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will agree with you. But after drinking from it, you will come to death and deadly suffering. And then he drank from it without reflecting, and he didn't give it up. As he drank from it, its color, smell, and taste agreed with him, but after drinking it, he came to death or deadly suffering. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pain. And the obvious example of this are those the compulsions? The compulsions of habit, the addictions, the compulsions that we're just the habit so strong, the, the the pleasure for that pleasure through the senses that we just get intoxicated, and then we wind up in situations or in um, uh, doing things that we regret or we're sorry for. It's cause pain, cause suffering. Without reflecting on consequences, without reflecting on the consequences. I remember again, you know, in co- when I was in college in the 60s, there was a lot of alcohol. It was actually before drugs. Drugs hadn't come into history yet, into the culture yet. So it was a lot of alcohol, and so it was just kind of what we did as college students we drank a lot of alcohol and i would get i would drink cuz that's what everybody was doing and i got really sick and really you know really it was very painful and it would make me you know feel very delirious and then the next week it would come and i would do it again you know and then another year you know same thing not reflecting on it but it was pleasurable it was joyful i was having a great time but not reflecting on the consequences Sukha now, dukkha later, sukhanau, dukkha later, sukha, now. Later. sukha now. And that confusion, again, the lack of wisdom about what's really going on there. We might see it around food, the indulging in food. It's great now, it tastes good, you know, I want more, I want more. But then we're really sick. Or we, we get ill through the indulgences. We have um, Thanksgiving, in uh, America and it's hard to stop eating with all that wonderful food it's just like the table's filled with food and pies and desserts and it just you keep eating and eating and eating and it just feel terrible for the rest of the day and it's supposed to be a day of you know having a holiday and it's just <laughs> ruined because of that that compulsion <coughs> This is what we get into. And so, we, so we're asked to reflect, to contemplate the consequences of our, of our actions, of our choices. So these first two are the two that reinforce, because out of the lack of wisdom and clear seeing, they reinforce more, <coughs> more greed, more hatred, more confusion. We're not, nothing, we're not transforming consciousness, consciousness is 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 continuing to strengthen its fixations and its solidity so nothing really changes there it's like where's the wh- what's going to bring about the change so then the the second two are the transformative ones so so here's the third one suppose there were <laughs> Suppose there were fermented urine mixed with various medicines. And and in those days urine and maybe even today urine is a medicine medicine. So suppo- suppose there were fermented urine mixed with various medicines and a man came sick with jaundice. And they told him good man this fermented urine is mixed with various medicines drink from it if you want. As you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will not agree with you. But after drinking from it, you will be well. Then he drank from it after reflecting. <laughs> this is key. He drank from it after reflecting what was being given to him and what he was engaging in. And, and he didn't give it up. As he drank from it, its color, taste, and smell did not agree with him. But after drinking from it, he became well. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is painful now and ripens in the future as pleasure. Dukkha now, sukha later. Suffering now that leads to the end of suffering. And a really good example of this is sitting a retreat. (laughs) And all that you have to go through here, you know, all the inner turmoil and and pain and, you know, but yet, dukkha now, but sukha later, is going to bring about more pleasure, it's going to bring about more happiness, it's going to bring about more ease, and there's a faith in that, there's a wisdom in that, there's a clarity in that, and so we choose it, even though it's painful now. This is what breaks up habits. And this, as a teacher, this is what we're really cheering people on. We could keep sitting, sitting, sit with it. Stay with it. Feel it. Keep your attention there. Stay present. And we want to drift off. We want to leave. We want to do this. Stay with it. Stay with it. So we feel like cheerleaders sometimes, you know? Because it's, yeah, we know it's painful now, but it's going to ripen as pleasure. Joy, freedom. We're breaking up our habits. We use our renunciation, our letting go of the old difficult habits and restraint, like keeping to the five precepts, even though it's difficult sometimes to um, maybe around sexuality, you know, the strong passions and the desires of sexuality, yet we renounce. We let go. We don't have to just follow and act it out because we know the consequences sometimes. On uh, the three-month retreat at IMS, there was a yogi in the kitchen who was working in the kitchen. And there were a lot of yogis around. And and, uh, there were about 100 people on this retreat. And so she would just look around and she'd see all the things people were doing wrong That person's not doing that right. They're not washing the pot right. They're not putting things away right. They're not sweeping the floor right. And she would just get angry. And she would get um, judgmental and just get wound up and stressful. And so she came to me. She said, What do I do? You know, I'm just so, I just get so tense there. And I said, Why are you looking? (laughs) Just stop looking. Just guard your. Sense doors, you just look down, stop looking for all the things that people are doing wrong. You know, and it's like, oh yeah, well, you know, that's hard to do because the habit wants to go out and judge and blame and make wrong and feel the anger. That's what's familiar. That's the familiar identity, the position. But to actually restrain that is hard. So, dukkha now, it's hard to do that, and yet. That's what's going to lead to the sukha, the pleasure. So this understanding, understanding the consequences, even though it's painful, yeah, I'm going to do it because I know something's going to give rise to some freedom here. That's the, the self-discipline question that we had this morning. Yeah, sometimes it takes discipline, and yet that discipline leads us to the freedom, to the opening, and the balance of mind. So the last one. Suppose there were curd, yogurt, honey, ghee, butter, and molasses. Sweet. Mixed together. And those are all honey. Those are all medicines. So yogurt and honey and uh, butter and molasses. So this medicine. Suppose they were all mixed together and a man with dysentery came. And they told him, Good man, this is curd, honey, ghee, and molasses mixed together. Drink from it if you want. As you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will agree with you, and after drinking from it, you will be well. Then he drank from it after reflecting. Again, after reflecting on the consequences. And he didn't give it up. As he drank from it, its color, smell, and taste agreed with him, and after drinking from it, he became well. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pleasure. Sukha now, sukha later. And I think this really is that inspiration that comes from following a teaching, following the Buddha's path. There's some joy. We experience a certain level of joy and happiness because we're doing it now. Even though there are those moments of pain and difficulty, but there's a there's a, a a way that it uplifts our heart. We feel good about what we're doing. When we have faith and some understanding of our of our path, it brings us joy now and it brings us joy in the future. And we learn how to engage in actions that actually uplift our heart and uplift our mind. So when we notice that our mind Uh, is is turning towards generosity for example. I have a thought for example um, uh, my niece is getting married and um, I want to really be there and support her and to buy her something that will really make her happy and all these thoughts are, they make me feel good and they make me feel happy. Now I could just have the thoughts and the thoughts could arise and pass away and then nothing ever gets done but because I, have, because I know about the nature of thought and action, I follow those thoughts. Yeah, I want to really go out and find something that she's really going to love and offer her this gift, a really special gift and a gift she could put in her house. And all that uplifts my heart. I feel happy <coughs> the whole way through. Sukha now and Sukha later when she gets it and I give it to her and she has it and it's her house following the generosity following the love follow, following the kindness when it arises this kind of happiness now or 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 if being with somebody who's in pain or who's suffering in some way that when my heart moves out to them yeah maybe the experience isn't very easy and it's difficult or challenging in some way but by, through the contact and through the love and through the care there's joy in that. The joy arises in the heart that I'm there I'm taking care I'm I'm being uh, 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 careful and kind and gentle and tender here and there's a, a joy that arises in the moment and in the action and in the future. I'll feel good about it, they feel good about it and so we consider, we reflect, what, what are the kinds of things that do uplift my heart? I was uh, at, the, at the beginning of the week, um, Catherine's husband, Yanai, walks into the teacher wing with a big bouquet of flowers for his wife. Really beautiful, you know, walking in, presenting her. He's not going to really be with her for a week. Here's the flowers. Such a you know bringing joy uplifting, they're sitting on her, on her dresser, you know, and so the flowers are there. We see them and enjoy them, and he feels happy because he brought them. So, doing these kinds of things, what? How can we begin to orient our life so that we are engaged in action that not only brings about more pleasure and joy for ourselves but in that act- action is generating that for others too and so whatever that is you know it could even be social engaged work even though again it's difficult and challenging and stressful at times the 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 love and the inspiration that 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 we feel through the doing of it is our our as our sukha is our joy, and then that has its impact, has its ripples, it carries through, makes a difference all around us. This is how we not only uplift our own mind and our own heart and our own consciousness, but it goes out and it uplifts others. As opposed to following the thoughts that are more angry and resistant and fearful, and then we act out from those, what are we generating? We're just generating more pain more confusion in the world. And then that becomes more of the reality, not only for ourselves, but for others. So this is why I say that if we want to change the world, we have to start here. We have to start here within our own minds, within our own consciousness. And as we begin to purify and transform our own consciousness, that everything around us transforms. Our reality and the people that we come into contact with, the people that we touch, are transformed in some way. It may not be apparent, and we may want people to change more than they do, but then that's grasping. But we just continue to do our work. You know, there's this lovely story coming to mind where this woman um, went and sp- spent time with her parents, and she was and her family, and she was trying to indoctrinate every indoct- indoctrinate everybody and change them and give them the Buddha's teachings and say, well, if you watch your mind, this will happen, and you know you're not being very mindful, and this is what mindfulness is, you know, and really trying to teach the the teachings, and everybody went ugh. <laughs> you know we don't want you know get away we don't like this and then she reflected and then she she let go of it and then she decided well i'll just be kind and caring and loving and i'll i'll i'll, I'll bring forth more of these qualities and i won't try to change people i'll just be the person who i really want to be and for them to see and then she got all this Oh, come, come forward. We want you to be around. Yeah, you know. And then she wrote this letter to one of her teachers, and she said, you know, what I realized is that my my family hates me when I'm a Buddhist. (laughs) But they love me when I'm a Buddha. They love me when I'm a Buddha. So we just want to, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for you to be a Buddha? Here and now. And yeah, of course we don't really know how to do that. But the teachings and the practices, and they all give us, they point, they point us. They point the way. Do this, do that. Pay attention here. Discern this. Follow this. Don't follow that. Cultivate this. Don't cultivate that. And then we start to get a sense of how to work within our own minds, within our own beings. And as the, as, the, as the Buddha said, people don't know what things to cultivate and to follow and what things not to cultivate and to follow. And so, so, the, so the teachings are actually pointing us to what to cultivate and how to cultivate. And the Buddha felt that this was such an important teaching, he said it could dispel darkness. And this is the simile, he said, Just as in autumn, in the last month of the rainy season, when the sky is clear and cloudless, the sun rises above the earth, dispelling all darkness from space with its shining and beaming radiance. So too, the way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pleasure dispels with its shining and beaming radiance any other teaching. Shining, and beaming radiance. Like a diamond. Does that radiance of clarity and wisdom and love Shining on us, giving us a pathway, illuminating, illuminating a path for us. How we can work very directly, right here and now, with the conditions that are manifesting within our own mind, in our own body. Nothing has to change. Nothing has to be different. We've got everything we need right here and now to do this practice. We don't have to be anywhere else. We don't have to be anyone else. We have the conditions of our life presented to us. We could say the karma. The karma that has already been set in motion right here. And we bring our awareness to that, bring our consciousness to it and how can we bring about the transformation right now that is going to bring about this freedom. Right now. We don't have to wait till we get happier or we get more clear or we get well, physically well. We don't have to have to postpone until we have more understanding or more wisdom or whatever it is we think we have to have before we can really start to move in our practice. Right now, just with what we've got, we start where we are, We start where we are, right now. We'll always come up with some kind of excuse, won't we? Some kind of reason. Well, you know, I got a lot on next week. (laughs) You know, my schedule's really full. I don't know when I'm going to get a chance to practice or to pay attention. You know, from this point of view, it does sound kind of funny. You know how we can't make time to pay attention but it just takes this one moment of contact. What's happening? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? What's happening around me? What's the wise way to respond right now to inner and outer? How can I respond to the conditions inner and outer in this moment with wisdom and compassion? And we have that as a question, an inquiry, really, an inquiry that we hold for ourselves. Right now, what can I do to respond with wisdom and compassion? Because that's going to clarify what we're setting in motion. And until we're actually paying attention to what we're setting in motion, we may not know what we're setting in motion. And then we're just, you know, dukkha now, dukkha later, sukha now, dukkha later. Duka duka duca. So let's consider what are we setting in motion? Because we can set in motion freedom. We can set in motion happiness, generosity, love, truthfulness, morality, all these things that renunciation that begin to change not only internally but externally. And not only externally in our immediate environment but the ripples go out like throwing a stone in the pond and the ripples go out and touch every bit of the shore. Not one bit of the shore is untouched by that act. That is the power of our actions. So uh, I'll end with, I'd like to read this um, piece by Roger Keys. Um, and it's, it's written in a way that I think is a, a very lovely kind of pointing of Kind of another guidance for us. And it's from this, maybe this imaginary master, Hokusai. Hokusai. It goes, it's like this it's what Hokusai says. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there is no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it is interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says every one of us is frightened. He says every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says everything is alive. shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Love, feel, let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. Let's sit for a moment. May all beings open to the immensity of life. May all beings be free. So I wanted to um, give the Dharma talk tonight instead of last last night um, mo- mostly because I am uh, need to let you know that I have to leave early in the morning tomorrow and so I wanted to spend more of my time with you this evening <laughs> before I go. Um, now we 'll kind of let the cat out of the bag of why the retreat had to be one day shorter, uh, so that's where some of the confusion came because we uh, what happened is my my niece, who's my my brother's daughter, uh, decided she had to get married on the solstice, which is Saturday. <laughs> but she made that more important than consulting my schedule. Um, and so initially I thought, well, that's the consequences of your choice. I won't be at your wedding, right? But I felt like, okay, I'm not going to be at your wedding if you're going to do that to me, you know, the, <laughs> the revenge. Um. <laughs> and then we sat together and I we looked at the, we're kind of looking at the flights and is there any way I could actually get back? And so what we realized is that flying from London to San Francisco, I actually get back. Only three hours later than when I leave, so I leave. If I leave tomorrow at two o'clock, I'm home in San Francisco at five thirty, and the same day. So, so we said, "Oh wow! Well, if you if you actually made your retreat a day shorter and you left Friday morning, you could get home in time to come to my wedding on Saturday." So that's what happened. So I called. Catherine and a few months ago. This is only a few months ago, and we decided to make the retreat one day shorter, and that I would need to leave um, uh, before the um, session tomorrow morning, so I could get my train up to London Heathrow and get my plane back. So that's going to happen, and I need to. I'll have a car uh, leaving tomorrow morning at 7:45. Uh, from the driveway, so um, and I'll have to say farewell tonight because I, I'll have to get myself together before I won't be able to come into the hall tomorrow morning. So um, I wanted to, uh, you know, to be with you this evening and. Give you my apologies that I won't be able to car- carry on with you till the closing of the retreat as much as I would have loved to do that to be with you right through to the end. But actually, my um, my brother died uh, 25 years ago when he was 40 years old in an accident, and this is his only daughter, and so and I'm his only sister, only her only aunt from her father. So it felt very important for me to be there. This. Uh, to represent a side of the family, so um, I hope you can um, uh, forgive me for my early departure, and uh, I just wish you many, many blessings on uh, both the f- the completion of your retreat, and also for your continued journey along this great way, and. Uh, I hope that we meet again sometime. It's been a real real pleasure for me. It's always a great pleasure to engage in the kind of retreat that uh Catherine and I do together which is much more engaged as you know the the, the, the inquiries and the discussions and the uh the groups and that sort of thing and you know really encouraging you to bring the most of yourself forward and and hope that that you Find a way to continue doing that in your life and in your relationships, too. So it's been my great joy. Um, I will, Catherine and I will sit together, the nine o'clock sit, um, and maybe we'll do some chant, we'll do some chat together, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, encourage you to come and sit together for this last sitting tonight. Um, You wanted to... Yeah, I just wanted to make it clear that um, anyone who's part of this retreat, I know all of you here aren't, but anyone who is part of this retreat, please come to the morning sitting before breakfast. Um, As you know earlier, I was planning planning to give the talk about Dana, and rather than do it tonight, I'm going to do it tomorrow. So please all attend that sitting uh, at 6.30 in the morning. Thank you. Yes, and that, there'll be some uh, closing announcements from the managers and the uh, Donna talk, and uh, that'll probably start around 7 o'clock. So if you do oversleep or something, but you probably wouldn't, um, <laughs> do just please come in uh, so you can hear those uh, those important announcements and how uh, what will be involved in uh, closing the retreat uh, tomorrow. Um, and the schedule for tomorrow is posted, and... Uh, We'll, breakfast will be at 7:40, ten, about 10 minutes later, just to allow for the announcements and the things that need to be said here, and uh, then the opening. Oh, you've already said it. Okay, so Catherine's already given you the schedule, and it is posted. Mm-hmm. So, um, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening.